Welcome to the Mortcast. Before we get started, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th and Blake and Moisee, in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Now's a good time to go down and get yourself a bottle of not only that 2017 Cabernet, but some of that Blake Street blend. Um, uh, I have reliable uh, information from myself and from people I know that that Blake Street blend is really, really good, and it's from Colorado grapes. It's a local Colorado thing, so it's really good. Um, so definitely, definitely check that one out. But they've got other things. They've got uh, Syrahs. They got Malbucks. They got they got you know things that you get rosés. They got Rieslings with Western Colorado uh, uh, partnerships. It's just they got really everything you need to uh, give yourself a great wine tasting experience. Go to bfwdenver.com. Book yourself a table. Or you can get yourself some swag, or you can pick yourself up a bottle, which is really cool. Or you can go down to the dairy block. Like I said, you book yourself a table. Uh, they got a nice outdoor seating area. We're coming into fall, which is basically peak Colorado, so keep that in mind. Uh, people, are, the denizens of Denver, will be out and about. Um, so if you want to go down and, and witness the glory that is Denver in the fall, I highly suggest you do that. Once again, they're located between 18th and 19th, and Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Go to bfwdenver.com, pick yourself up a bottle, uh, or, you know, book yourself a table, pick yourself up some swag. They also have virtual wine tastings online, and you can find out more about those uh, on bfwdenver.com, or you can go to Facebook and and Instagram under Blanchard Family Wines. When you go in or you talk to him, tell him Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you. What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining me in the latest Mortcast part of the CSG Network. I'm, of course, your host, Jeff Morton. Um, this one's going to be about uh, something that kind of spurred me to talk about this was the, the, the Brian Shaw era and how... Maybe not how far the Nuggets have come, but the but the kind of the realizations that they needed to pivot that it created. And I've gone on record in saying this, and I would say this up front at the start of this podcast. I, I think Brian Shaw wasn't the right coach, but I think he was let down by a numerous factors, including the assistant coaches he had. Um, I've been consistent with that since he was fired in 2015. Um the guy was uh, kind of had cut off at the knees um, in various different ways by his own choices and choices that were made for him. So I don't I don't necessarily put everything on Shaw, but he was a lot to blame for the way things started to go in 2013, 14, and 14, and 15. So to kind of give you a little bit of prehistory, I'll give you a little bit of prehistory in this one, and then in the second half we'll talk a little more about uh, Shaw's first year. Uh, and then in the next podcast I will talk to you about Shaw's second year and factors that led up to his firing and all that stuff. So uh, the off season of 2013 was the most chaotic off season I have ever witnessed personally, uh, and that includes the Carmelo Anthony year. A lot of stuff went on in that year. And it was, uh, to say the least, it was the most upheaval I had seen since 1996. Uh, and I wasn't covering the team in 1996. I was just a fan. Um, 
that it began with uh, basically before the season ended with Danilo Gallinari getting hurt. Went into the playoffs with uh, the mole stuff with Andrea Godala. And then continued uh, into George Carl getting coach of the year, getting fired a week later, and uh, before that, Masai Ujiri leaving. It was it was all within the span of a week. Uh, one of the things I kind of pointed out on the last podcast is Masai Ujiri took the entire Nuggets coaching staff with him. Uh, not coaching staff, the entire the entire Nuggets scouting department, basically. Um, it was it was a total clean house. Uh, and they all went with him to Toronto. Toronto had backed a dump truck full of money up to Maasai and promised to invest in NBA Africa, which is really his baby. And I think that really was the de- deciding factors there, and the Nuggets just couldn't and wouldn't compete with that. Um, and it ended up the way it ended up. Josh Kroenke went through um, a period of trying to find a general manager. That included interviewing Pete D'Alessandro, who ended up going to Sacramento. And it just was, it just, it, it just was not good. Uh, Carl was was fired uh, for a myriad of different reasons that uh, I could probably go into a different podcast on. But the decision was made to let Carl go shortly after he was given the Coach of the Year award, which is maybe like a curse or something like that. Um, Carl uh, leaving left a giant hole, and. One of the holes it left was that you were guaranteed you would have a winning record when George Carl was here. Um, he was a veteran coach and knew how knew the roster really well, and he made the best of the roster as it was. Um, and I think that is a factor that's going to overhang the Shaw era was that the roster he was given was not one conducive to what he wanted to do. Uh, when he first uh, came in, there were some things said, and I'll talk about that in the second half, um, that really couldn't have been fulfilled. But Josh Kroenke ends up in- interviewing coaches and general managers at the same time. It was you know a time where the Nuggets had neither, <laughs> which is I can point to very few times in history where uh, you have no general manager and no coach at the same time. Uh, usually a general manager is hired, then the coaches let go. This was this was the whole front office that had nothing. Josh Kroenke was doing a lot of interviewing. Um, he interviewed a bunch of coaches as well as he was interviewing general managers. Pete D'Alessandro leaves for Sacramento um, and ended up back with the Nuggets like a year later, a year and a half later. But finally, late, and I do mean late, Tim Connolly's hired by the Denver Nuggets. And less than a week later, Brian Shaw's hired. Um, Both guys had been interviewed by Josh Kroenke. Um, I have gone on record of saying this, and I and I believe this 100%, 2013-14 is largely the Josh Kroenke year by himself. Um, the Nuggets did not have a lot of time to do anything based on how late Tim Connolly was hired and how little support staff they had in the front office. Uh, 
you know, Conley quickly brought in Arturis Karnasovas, um, and they maybe had one other person with them along with Josh Kroenke. They go into the draft that year uh, in that offseason, really just like it, 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 Conley didn't have a ton of time. Um, due to the way the Nuggets roster was constructed and the fact that they couldn't really work out any trades at the moment, um, they were stuck with a roster that couldn't afford to put another first-round guarantee contract on their roster, so they end up uh, trading the pick to uh, the, the Utah Jazz, who were who selected Rudy Gobert. Uh, so in the second round, in the non-guarantee contracts, they select Eric Green. That was them basically compensating for having basically zero time um, to really do much of anything. That's how chaotic that offseason was. Uh, meanwhile, going into free agency, uh, I had heard long before the Nuggets got into a position to where they were competing to get Andre Iguodala back. I had learned long before that Iguodala was, had his sights set on Golden State. We had seen what he had done in the playoffs that year. Um, I don't think Carl or leaving or Ujiri leaving factored any, whatsoever, any way whatsoever into his decision. Um, Iguodala felt more comfortable in... Um, Bigger cities, coastal cities, and that's really what he wanted. Um, more power to him. I don't like his behavior during the playoffs, but that's that's we've discussed that in the past. And so the Nuggets were left with trying to move. Oh, and the, also in the draft, that draft that year, they got Joffrey Laverne. Uh, for, for, let's not forget about him. Joffrey Laverne was the set, also the. I think he was in the. His pick was in the forties. And Eric Green was in the 30s. The Nuggets ended up with two second-round picks that year. So, Nuggets going to free agency. They don't really have room to do a ton. Um, they end up signing J.J. Hickson uh, after they had let Costa Kufus go. Um, they, you know, it, uh, it was just... With Iguodala gone, Kufus gone, they ended up doing a sign-and-trade, which brought in Randy Foy. And Shaw kind of factored big time in getting J.J. Hickson in. Um, and, you know, then they end up sending, sending Nate Robinson as well. And the Nuggets go into the 13-14 season with basically the 2012-13 roster minus Iguodala and Kufus and the injured Danilo Gallinari. Um, but they have still most of the starting lineup with Fareed and Mozgov and uh, Wilson Chandler and Ty Lawson. You throw in Randy Foy, uh, Nate Robinson, J.J. Hickson, who was getting factored in a lot of time, and you really start to see what the direction they wanted to go. Now, what I haven't talked about is Josh Kroenke's uh, kind of wanting to change the approach that the Nuggets had. Um, it was a deliberate decision to go to a primarily defensive approach um, with a slower-paced offense. And that factored into several of the decisions. Um, JaVale McGee was still here. Uh, it was a roster that um, was still, even with the addition of J.J. Hickson and 
uh, you know, even with Nate Robinson there, they really the roster was still conducive to um, having a faster-paced, free-form sort of basketball. Shaw set about trying to fundamentally restructure the Nuggets' offense and try to simulate something else that he was seeing in other stops he made along the way. And on the other side of the podcast, or excuse me, on the other side of the uh, break, I'll talk to you about what Shaw did in that first year and how it ended up falling on its face. Now it's time to talk to you about DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting, a official sports betting partner of the NFL. The first Sunday of the NFL season is here, and the excitement continues with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. DraftKings is giving all new customers a can't-miss offer to celebrate the return of the NFL season. Bet just $1 on any football game this weekend and receive $200 in free bets instantly, no matter what. That's right. DraftKings Sportsbook is giving away all giving all new used customers $200 in free bets instantly when they bet at least $1 on any football game. That's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, as I said before, a bunch of friends of mine <clears throat> use DraftKings Sportsbook, and they love it. Um, like I said, I don't personally place bets. If anyone listened to my radio show from last year, you know this. I, I'm not that uh, – I'm kind of risk-averse, but uh, I do know a lot of people friends and family included who use DraftKings Sportsbook, and they all uh, speak extremely highly of it. Uh, all the deals on there are just right up their alley, and they love it. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code MHS to turn to receive two $100 in free bets when you place a bet of $1 on any one week, week one game. I can say that. That's promo code MHS to get your free $200 in, in free bets instantly this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older. Colorado only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Sometime during that season, maybe even in the preseason, it was painfully obvious that the Denver Nuggets didn't necessarily have the type of players that you need to run a triangle-ish system. Uh, Brian Shaw had interviewed many different places, and one of the problems he had coming into the season was uh, they didn't give him a ton of money to get assistant coaches, and he ended up going with um, what I would like to refer to as his friends from Oakland. Um, and one of those guys was uh, Lester Connor, former basketball player, assistant coach with the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, they just, you know, it was a, an assistant coaching staff that, that also featured Melvin Hunt, um, who was the only holdover from the George Carl era. The, the Nuggets went into the season with kind of a hodgepodge of, play, of players on the roster because there was no vision, even with Daniil Gallinari hurt, there was no vision that the Nuggets were going to be a losing team. Um, the, even at this post in his off-season press conference, Josh Kroenke was saying, you know, we still think this is a winning roster, was his quote. 
and it ended up being particularly in that by the time you get to New Year's Eve, it became painfully clear that if the roster wasn't mediocre, it certainly didn't fit what Brian Shaw was trying to do. Let me dispel some myths. Shaw often said that he wasn't trying to do the triangle. This is blatantly false. Um, the Nuggets practice triangle sets. I watched them do it in practice. The Nuggets uh, were trying to do triangle with Kenneth Fareed in the pinch post. And there is where you had some issues. Um, Kenneth Fareed is not a pinch post player. Um, he is a run-to-the-basket, be energetic player. Uh, he very much fit what George Carl was trying to do, but he did not fit what Brian Shaw was trying to do. So as the year progressed, Shaw had to completely abandon trying to incorporate the triangle. Um, and this this really was an interesting situation because, you know, triangle point cards don't distribute the ball. They are basically bringing the ball up and run a motion set, basically. Um, and it can work, and it can still work in the modern NBA. Uh, you know, all you have to do is extend the triangle out, and it results into a, uh, into a three-point shot. Um, but you can't, uh, you can't run it with a guy who wants to distribute the ball. And therein lies the problem with Andre Miller, who was another holdover from the 12-13 roster. Miller, uh, as everyone knows, is a ball-distributing point guard. Um, lots of assists. And his usefulness in the particular offensive approach that Brian Shaw was trying to incorporate was uh, not great. And his role became more and more diminished as the first half of the season rolled on. And by the time they get to New Year's Eve, Andre Miller receives a didn't do not DNP CD do not did not play coach's decision um, for the first time in his career his his streak of not having a DNP CD was quite long and obviously that resulted in Andre Miller screaming at Brian Shaw on the bench there was poor communication uh, with. Andre Miller. Uh, Andre Miller shouldn't have reacted the way he did, but uh, it's quite a, the circumstances that led up to that point weren't exactly ideal. And it became uh, a bad situation that boiled over. And it wasn't, uh, this was our first sign that the locker room tensions were large. One of Shaw's approaches coming into the 13-14 season was to tell people, I know how to win, I played with Kobe. And that went over like a lead balloon, particularly with a team that had just won 57 games. Um, it wasn't the best of approaches. If I was someone who was advising Shaw, I would have told him to not go that direction. You could tell stories about Kobe but I wouldn't do it in a sense that I know how to win. Um, you are talking to players who just uh, had the 
best regular season record in NBA Nuggets NBA franchise history. You are not going to impress them with telling him that you know how to win because you played with Kobe. And you coached Kobe under Brian Shaw. Uh, excuse me, under Phil Jackson. So Shaw got off on the wrong foot, and it just kept getting worse. His assistant coaches didn't help. Uh, I can tell you 100%, aside from Mel- Melvin Hunt, they did not respect any, any of the assistant coaches. Um, and it got worse and worse. And after the, uh, after the and I can tell you because I was there, the day after the Andre Miller incident, New Year's Day, I was down at Pepsi Center, at, excuse me, Ball Arena, at the time with Nate Timmons, Mert Kisla, and Chris Dempsey. And we were the only four there. But the Nuggets took so long coming out that Nate had other things to do. He had to leave. So it ended up with just me, me Kisla, and Dempsey down there. And a solemn-faced Brian Shaw came out of the Nuggets locker room and spoke to us in the in the bowels of uh, what was then known as Pepsi Center. And what had happened is that basically they had individual meetings with every every player on the roster. And uh, to say that things were tense is probably an understatement. Now, the interesting thing from there on was that Shaw kind of dropped the the triangle approach. It came back in fits and starts. Uh, It was clear it was never going to work with Kenneth Fareed as a featured piece. Uh, It just just wasn't going to work. Fareed was not that type of type of player. Mozgov was more of that type of player, but he wasn't the greatest passer in the world. Uh, Mozzie, by this point, had taken a bigger role. Um, JaVale McGee got injured and it just, the Nuggets kind of from about January on, actually they played better, um, featuring a big win against the, uh, against the, um, Los Angeles Clippers in, uh, 2014, uh, last minute shot by Randy Foy, uh, Super Bowl night or maybe the day after the Super Bowl, I think. Um, the Super Bowl where the Broncos lost 43 to eight. Um, anyway, they, they, they had some moments. Um, Kenneth Fareed was scoring more than he ever did. They put the ball in his hands and made him a feature piece of the offense. But the, the, the roster was just a terrible mismatch of things that weren't going to work. And it was going to take a while for that to improve itself. This this roster was a, a largely a holdover from the Carl Ugeri era. And that era was not going to hold with Brian Shaw. And the Nuggets losing like they were doing, because they won 36 games the first year of Brian Shaw. The Nuggets losing like they did was giving some people in the league some schadenfreude about the current state of the Nuggets. And on next week's part two, I'll talk to you about the 2014 offseason and the uh, events leading up to Brian Shaw being fired. Uh, It's an interesting story. I hope you stick with me.